Oh, you've just been muted. Or you are muted, I don't know why. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was on such a roll as well. Hello there, folks. Happy New Year and welcome back to the EuropeLex podcast. Truly the best thing to tackle those January blues. I'm Ewan Healy and back with me, of course, is my very good friend after a well-earned break, Gabriel Hedengren. Yay, thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to, to be back. Finally, it's been it's been a while now uh, and obviously so much happening and so much coming up uh, in the coming months in 2022. So yeah, lots to crack on with and discuss. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of really exciting political content coming this year. And we've already had like a whole raft of really interesting political news so far this January 2022. Um, And so we've got lots of that to cover. And then after that, we're going to be joined by uh, Marina Costalobo, a political scientist at the Institute of the Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon, who talked to you, Gabriel, about the upcoming SNAP parliamentary election in Portugal, didn't she? Yes, it's very interesting and very informative. So you should listen in on that to get a crash course on what's happened, why the snap elections uh, came to be and what to expect uh, in the next two weeks or so. The, The elections are on the 30th of January. So do stay with us for that. But before all of that, here's a little message about how you can support us and our headlines across the continent. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind EuropeLex in this podcast you're listening to? We are currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that could help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you are listening to right now, but only better, of course. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, do reach out to us at podcast at europolex.eu. We at EuropeLex are run wholly by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors and everything we do, including this very podcast here, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And of course, we always want to carry on what we're doing and do so much more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month. Don't miss out and support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. To start off our headlines this year, fortunately, we have to start with some sad news. That is that the European Parliament's president, David Sassoli, has passed away in the early hours of January the 11th, the age of 65. He'd been dealing with health problems for several months and was hospitalized again on December 26th with a serious complication due to dysfunction of the immune system, according to a statement by a spokesperson. Sassoli has been a well-known journalist in Italy for many decades and was elected to the European Parliament in 2009 and again in 2014 with the centre-left Partito Democratico. In 2019, he was elected President of the European Parliament with 345 votes, succeeding Antonio Tajani, partly through a deal between the political groups which had centre-left S&D take over the first two-and-a-half-year term while leaving the next to the centre-right EPP. 
Following Sassoli's death, centre-right MEP and first vice president of the parliament with the EPP, Roberta Metzola, will be standing in as acting president until the already scheduled election of his successor on January 18th. Besides Metzola, who will claim the position on behalf of the EPP, partly on the basis of the 2019 deal with S&D to rotate the position, and partly based on relative strength in seats, the election will also be contested by Alice Barkukna, a Green MEP from Sweden, Cosma Szotowski, an ECR MEP from Poland, and Ciro Rego, a left-wing MEP from Spain. The new president will need an absolute majority of valid votes cast, that is at least 353 out of 705 votes, if everyone in the parliament votes. This time, it should be easy getting everyone to vote, seeing as the vote will be conducted through televoting, much like Eurovision. Perhaps it is no coincidence that this new system was tested by having test voters vote on pop stars such as Lady Gaga and Christina Aguilera and other millennial options. Intrepid EU affairs reporters did not actually discover who won the EU Parliament's vote on pop stars. What a shame. The election will take place in three rounds during which the political groups can keep the same candidates or change them. If no one wins the third vote, a fourth round will be held between the first two candidates from the third round and can be won with just a simple majority. Sticking with European Union news, it's a new year, a new season, and of course that also means a new presidency of the Council of the European Union. France took over the rotating six-month presidency of the various configurations of the Council of the EU's ministers on January 1st, succeeding Slovenia. France is the first country in the latest trio of presidency countries grouped together to coordinate priorities over the next 18 months and will be followed by Czechia and then Sweden in January 2023. The presidency of the Council of the EU does not technically come with any additional powers or advantages for the member state taking over and in fact can limit that country from openly promoting its own interests or taking strong positions on controversial issues to not be seen to overstep that. The presiding country does, however, get to set the legislative agenda for the Council and direct developments in line with its own national and European level agenda. France has already started doing this, of course. In a meeting with Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in Paris at the beginning of the month, President Macron once again laid out France's vision of a sovereign Europe in the geopolitical and military sphere, as well as importantly, the trade and industry domain. France's presidency is, however, expected to be complicated by this year's presidential elections in the country due to take place in April. Every action of the French presidency will, of course, impact the pre-election campaign in the country, and even Macron's possible re-election will lead into a complicated situation ahead of the June legislative election. So a unique situation here where the French government will be busy on many fronts, both at the European level and then defending themselves nationally Meanwhile, the other great engine of European politics, Germany, has also taken over the rotating presidency of the G7 for 2022, so they'll keep them busy. Moving on now to electoral news. On January 16th, Serbians will vote in a constitutional referendum, one of our favourite things to talk about here on the podcast, in which they will decide on changing the constitution, mainly regarding issues around the judiciary. The referendum was initially supposed to be held in 2021, but it was postponed to January, with the Serbian government pushing towards these judicial changes in order to bring the country's system in line with European Union legislation. Meanwhile, a segment of the public has complained that the government is rushing rushing in these changes, especially by bringing a new referendum law that would make 
them easier to pass. The president of the assembly bonded that the referendum law comes into force immediately because there is no time to lose. The position of the Venice Commission was awaited. We had a very dynamic communication with the Venice Commission for the first time. It received a positive opinion on both the text of the amendment and the referendum law. If the changes get adopted, Serbia's new judicial system will bring the country one step closer into joining the European Union, a process that has been taking a long time and has had new challenges during the pandemic. But even now, the odds seem to be difficult, as a new poll suggested that about 27.9% of respondents are against the changes, while 50.9% remain undecided. That's according to an NSPM poll. So clearly, it's all to play for in whether this will be passed. Now, by the time you'll be listening to this, the referendum will likely have taken place. So do check out our coverage on social media for the result and, of course, the aftermath and the impacts of that constitutional referendum. That's our second electoral news item for this episode. And we are now heading to Finland. Finland's going to the polls on Sunday, the 23rd of January, to elect its regional assemblies. Keen election observers, which um, I'm hoping and assuming a lot of our listeners are, um, you might be wondering why I've never heard of Finnish regional assemblies before. And that's because these are the very first elections of the new layer of government in the country. From the establishment of modern local government in the 19th century, beneath the national parliament, Finland has only been governed by a large number of municipal councils across the country. Although the number of these has decreased by about half, from 603 in the 1930s to 309 today. And as part of an ongoing debate about the effectiveness of this municipal structure, especially on service provision in rural and remote parts of the country, and reflecting concerns as well at discrepancies between municipalities, Support has grown for a new regional tier of government to streamline services and ensure better regional planning across wider areas. Previous governments in Finland have tried and failed to move to this kind of system, but last summer the incumbent government, led by Sanna Marin of the centre-left Social Democratic Party, finally gained the necessary votes to pass legislation setting up the regions. And that's how we ended up here, having Finland's first regional elections. The 21 new regions will have a very specific focus, exercising authority solely over social, healthcare, and emergency services, or uh, as they're called, well-being services, policy areas seen as most in need of improvement and greater coordinated planning. Their functions will come directly from the municipalities who currently control the, these policy areas. The regions cover the entirety of Finland beside the capital city of Helsinki, is worth noting, where the citywide municipality will remain in place as a single authority handling both municipal and regional matters. And uh, there's also the autonomous Orland Islands, which possess their own system of municipal government, and they won't be affected by uh, these new regions. There are some concerns about the representation of smaller towns and villages in these new regional assemblies. While much of the campaign has focused on the levels of taxation required to sustain these new regional structures. As Helsinki is not participating in the elections, national numbers will be skewed towards more rural parts of the country, of course, uh, which means that we can expect a better than usual performance from the agrarian center party and underperformance by the Green League, who tend to garner much of their vote from Helsinki. Newly elected members of the regional assembly will have some time to get used to their new roles as the regions will only gain responsibility over their policy areas at the beginning of 2023. Following on from that, regional elections will be synced with a municipal electoral calendar with the next elections for both levels of local government due in 2025. So we look forward to this premiere of Finnish regional elections and now you've had 
a full debrief on the administrative changes that have happened and will continue to happen in Finland over the coming years. So we hope that all runs smoothly. Yeah, thanks for that crash course, um, Gabriel. That was really interesting. And we obviously watch carefully. It's another constitutional change going on in a European state. And it's obviously quite a challenge, as it is in any country, to introduce new levels of government. So it'll be really interesting to see how things like turnout and voter apathy impact the results there. Now, it's not only Finns who'll be heading to the polls on January 23rd, as Cyprus's Turkish Cypriot community will be electing a new parliament after the right-wing coalition government of the internationally unrecognized territory quit last October following a deadlock over the election of the Turkish Cypriot parliament's speaker, as well as a scandal involving the national conservative then-Prime Minister Ersan Sana, who was recorded in compromising circumstances during a personal call with a young woman. National Conservative UBP's new leader, Faye Sokoglu, is currently the transitional prime minister of the territory, which is, of course, recognized only by Turkey as independent. The result of the election will not have a direct bearing on the island's stagnant reunification process, as the region's president, Ersin Tatar, also of UBP, is the Turkish Cypriot community's representative in UN negotiations. However, any shifts in political support among the left and the right could have indications on whether the population supports Tatar and UBP's recent decision to advocate for a two state solution rather than the agreed goal of reuniting the island as a federation. Meanwhile, in Republic of Cyprus politics, politicians have started manoeuvring ahead of next year's presidential elections. Centre-right DSIY leader Avarov Neofitu will be the candidate of his party after no other contenders came forward last Monday. However, Foreign Minister Nikos Christolides quit his position, arguing his potential interest to be a presidential candidate, but refraining from officially seeking to become DC's candidate himself. So lots to watch on the island of Cyprus down in Southeast Europe. Speaking of presidential elections, uh, Italy will be having some as well on January 24th. However, they will be indirect as the Italian parliament and regional representatives will hold an election to elect the country's new president. And how it will work is that up to 1,009 electors uh, are convening to cast secret ballots. Uh, that would be 315 senators, six so-called senators for life, the 630 deputies in the Italian parliament, and 58 regional representatives as well. For the first three rounds of voting, a two-thirds majority is required, and after the fourth round, the threshold falls to an absolute majority. Regarding potential nominees for the position as president, the center-left incumbent president, Sergio Mattarella, while eligible for re-election, has ruled out a second term. As there are no official candidates, but electors can vote for anyone that holds Italian citizenship, has their political rights, and is over the age of 50, it is very much still unclear who the next president of Italy might possibly be. A lot of names of former and current ministers, mayors, prime ministers, judges, and chairpersons have obviously been brought up in the national discussion, with two of them being of most interest. So the first one is the incumbent prime minister and former European Central Bank president, Mario Draghi, who might be up to move from the prime minister position to that of president. The banker is credited for bringing some sort of stability in Italy during the last year. However, a move like this, shifting from prime minister to president, might prove to be destabilizing and therefore questionable as a move from him. The other politician that is currently making headlines as a potential candidate is none other than the former centre-right prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, that I'm sure most of you will be aware of and Remember, the 85-year-old media tycoon that was first successfully elected prime minister back in 1994, bringing an end to almost five decades of Christian democratic governments, 
has obviously been an important part of Italy's political system for the last three decades. He is the longest serving post-war prime minister of Italy, and he has also served as a deputy, as a senator, and as a member of the European Parliament. So this is one of the few positions left for him to occupy. However, as we all know, he's had a scandal-filled career. He's a very divisive figure. So it's interesting to see whether the center-right parties in Italy and their current leaders and electors will really support him for president. So uncertain situation, but it's looking like it has the potential to be something very interesting to follow you in. Definitely one of the early exciting uh, moments of European politics this year. Um, to see if uh, Berlusconi comes back and reascends to international fame for his bizarre and ridiculous, um, how do I put this, personality. Um, <laughs> also at the end of this month, the southwesternmost EU member state will hold its snap elections following the Portuguese political crisis triggered by the Socialist Party's government failure to pass a budget in October 2021. Now, the Europolex polling average suggests that neither the main centre-left party nor the main centre-right parties will manage to achieve a parliamentary absolute majority themselves, which of course leads to three hypothetical scenarios for future government solution. The resurrection of the recently declared terminated left-wing solution known as uh, Gerengonza, or contraption in English, manifested in, in the Socialist Party's minority government with support and confidence agreement from other left-wing forces, including Left Bloc, Communist Party, Ecologist Party, and potentially the Animal Rights Party, People, Animals, Nature. The return of a centre-right coalition is also a possibility, led by the centre-right Social Democratic Party, with a misleading name, and joined by the Liberal Initiative and the centre-right People's Party, possibly, again, also with People, Animals, Nature. Polling averages indicate that such a scenario would only be feasible with the direct or tacit support of the right-wing party, Chega, a scenario that all the aforementioned parties have refused to accept. The third potential option would be a compromise between the two major political parties, the Socialist Party and the Social Democratic Party, also known as a central bloc. This grand coalition, this political solution, had already materialised in 1983, but only lasted for two years. However, as this upcoming election has been defined in its ongoing debates, such a hypothesis seems to be hindered by the preference of achieving another victory on the left or the comeback of the right alone without the help of a grand coalition. Of course, for more information... Keep an eye on our socials and, of course, stick around for our interview with Marina Costa-Lobo later in this episode. Yes, please do. I'm, I'm biased, but it'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and now to some more solemn news again. And unfortunately, it's tied to another death. On January 7th, Birmingham Erdington MP Jack Dromey died suddenly at the age of 73. Dromi was a trade unionist and had been a Labour MP for 12 years. He has also served as treasurer of the centre-left party and shadow minister for housing, policing, pensions, paymaster general, and finally immigration. His passing has, of course, triggered a by-election in his constituency that will have to take place within six months. So yet another by-election in the UK. Moving on to governmental news, the Netherlands finally confirmed its government after 299 days of negotiations. King Willem-Alexander swore in the new cabinet ministers in a ceremony at the Nordeinde Palace in The Hague. The cabinet consists of 20 ministers, half of whom are women. The previous government of the same parties 
meaning centre-right VVD, Liberal D66, since centre-right CDA and centre-right CU resigned in January 2021 due to the child benefit scandal. Since then, Mark Rutte was the demissionary prime minister, during which he narrowly escaped a no-confidence vote in April. The elections took place in March 2021 and saw a record number of parties elected to the parliament, with 17 making it in. Social Liberal D66, led by a former UN diplomat Sigrid Kag, saw a surge in electoral popularity. Eventually, Kag got approved as the new finance minister, a position traditionally held by the runner-up of elections. The finance minister of the previous cabinet's CDA's Vopke Hoekstra got the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Keeping on with government news, we head to North Macedonia, where, if you recall from our previous episodes, Prime Minister Zoran Zaev has announced his resignation following not very good local election results, in which his party, centre-left SDSM, performed very poorly indeed. After some back and forth due to some pressure from his party and coalition partners, and after surviving a parliamentary no-confidence vote, a new party leader for the centre-left SDSM was elected, and Zoran Zaev has officially resigned. The new party leader is Dimitar Kovachevsky, and he's attempting to form a new government with the parliament holding a confidence vote in him. Now, by the time you'll be listening to this episode, the vote will most likely have taken place. But due to the nature in which time works, there's not much we can say uh, or, or predict. But it's obviously an important event in North Macedonia and uh, quite a dramatic fallout following local elections, especially, which is which is interesting. Uh, but chances are, when you listen to this, that North Macedonia has a new SDSM-led government, or maybe not. Damn linear time. <laughs> Yeah. Always inconvenience as us reporting the news on the podcast. <laughs> going from one ongoing story to another, we're going to go to Kazakhstan now, where a series of wide-ranging and violent protests have started following uh, dramatic hikes in the price of fuels, which is a central part of the Kazakh economy. The Central Asian nation had been simmering with discontent for a while as its authoritarian ruler uh, by the Nur Otan party entered its 20th year. In a series of mass protests, strikes and strategic raids against security forces, the authority of the central government collapsed for roughly a week as it tried to impose harsh conditions to quell the rioting. In the end, the government in Nur-Sultan, named for the former president Nazarbayev just after his resignation in 2019, had to request for the collective security treaty organization forces from Russia, Belarus, Armenia and Tajikistan to come in and quell protests. It's notable, of course, that CSTO member Kyrgyzstan The only liberal democracy in former Soviet Central Asia refused to deploy troops after a domestic political backlash. It's not known how much property damage has been seen, and the current declared estimates for death are around 18 for security personnel and over 160 civilians. All of this occurred over a period of about nine days. While the protests managed to secure the resignation of the government, the removal of Nazarbayev from the Security Council and a reversal of the price hike, the authoritarian Nur Otan party remains in absolute control of the country's affairs under President Qasem Jomar Tokayev. Yeah, very dramatic scenes and, and footage from, from Kazakhstan. And there's so much happening, I guess, in this in the foreign affairs and diplomatic space at the moment that it feels like ages ago already uh, at this point, but definitely definitely dramatic and it will be, will be, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but it will be interesting, I guess, to follow um, the impact of this in Kazakhstan going forward. And now to something lighter, Ewan, uh, our favorite part of the, the podcast, polling highlights. We begin in Romania, 
where National Conservative AUR reached an all-time record high polling results with 23% in the latest socio-poll. That's a significant rise from the 9% in received in last year's national parliament election. The same poll had another highlight as the centre-right Forsha Drepte made its first poll appearance, achieving 3%. The party was launched just last month by former Prime Minister of Romania Ludovic Orban as a split-off party from the centre-right PNL. And from Romania, we go to Hungary, where far-right Mi Hajank Mozgalem, or Our Homeland Movement in English, reached an all-time record high polling result of 5% in the latest Median poll. The party was launched in 2018 by former members of Jobbik, dissatisfied with the party's ideological shift. We're also featuring Switzerland in this episode's polling highlights, which isn't very common because national-level polls are few and far between out of Switzerland, unfortunately. But in a recent poll, the Green Liberal Party of Switzerland reached an all-time high uh, with 10.2%. And that was uh, Liwas who gave us that result. If repeated in a national parliament election, this would be a record high result for the party who has been on the rise for the past few years. So good news for the Green Liberal Party of Switzerland. Moving on to Ukraine, where the newly formed Razpol reached an all-time high of 10.5% in the latest DIF and Razumkov Center poll. The party was launched in November 2021 by Dmitry Razumkov, the former Speaker of the Parliament who had previously quit Volodymyr Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. So political shifts going on there in the same context as international negotiations uh, between Western nations and Russia over Ukraine's future. Our penultimate visit is to Slovenia, where the Pirate Party of Slovenia reached an all-time record high result of 4.9% in the latest Mediana poll, and Green Vesna made its first two appearances in the latest polls from Parsifal and Mediana achieving 1.1% and 2.4% respectively. The party was launched by two environmental activists, Urshas Koshnik and Urosh Maserl. Finally, we go to Norway, where the left-wing to far-left Red Party rose to an all-time high of 7.8% in the latest opinion poll. That is a 3.1 percentage points increase from its election result in the September parliamentary election, so a pretty significant rise for the left-wing party there. And now... We move on to one of the things we're most proud of here at EuropeLex, which is our EU parliamentary projection, reflecting polling movements and offering an indication of how voters in the European Union as a whole would vote should there be an EU parliament election today. Our latest projection is extremely interesting as it shows significant changes, mainly due to what's going on in France, Ewan. Absolutely right. Briefly, we should mention that at first place, we once again see the centre-right EPP group, 158 seats, which is up 12 seats since last month's projection, reclaiming its place after two months not in first place. And in second place, we see the S&D, which have fallen to 152, down three seats from last month. Of course, for a more detailed analysis of all of the results and to see how all the other groups are doing, head to our website where you can see our monthly projections going back all the way, I think, to 2014 at europelex.eu. And that's all the news and polling highlights from around the continent for this episode, our first of 2022. So thank you everyone for listening and do stick around for our discussion with political scientist Marina Costa-Lobo. If you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us on, including now with Spotify's all-new rating system on Spotify. And of course, tell your friends about us. That would mean the absolute world, of course. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, 
thoughts on a topic we should be covering, or of course, if you just want to say hi, drop us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. Also, EuropeLex now has merch. Do you want to support us? Are you a polling election nerd like us and just want everybody to know about it? Head on to europelex.redbubble.com and check out all the mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and more that we are producing for you. We are really excited about it and our team is working on more designs all the time. Let us know how you like them. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be back in action for EuropeLex and getting the chance to interview Europe's foremost politics experts about the slew of electoral action we have ahead of us in 2022. And as a lot of you will know, the first major national electoral event this year will be the upcoming SNAP elections organized in Portugal on January 30th, during which all 230 seats of the Assembly of the Republic in Portugal will be at stake. And with me to discuss this, I'm very happy to say is Marina Costa Lobo, who is a political scientist with a PhD from Oxford University, where she did a thesis on prime ministerial power and the functioning of government in democratic Portugal. And she's also a principal researcher at the moment at the Institute of Social sciences so welcome marina to the podcast thank you thank you for the invitation it's a pleasure yeah of course so as i said at the end of the month there'll be snap parliamentary elections called after the center-left minority government failed to pass a budget uh, which obviously in any country will trigger a political crisis when that happens do you mind just to start off and to help people see the setting of this breaking down you know what took place and why in the end the current portuguese government will not be serving its full term right so the the incumbent the recent incumbent is a socialist uh, minority government that um, was elected in 2019 and this is a, a cabinet that's led by Antonio Costa. What we need to know about this is that he was re-elected in 2019 and he had served the full mandate that started in 2015. And what was really new about that mandate was that he formed a minority socialist government with the support of the two radical left parties or parties to the left of the Socialist Party that did not enter government, but supported the government from parliament. And this was the Communist Party and the left bloc, Bloc Tshkirda. And these two parties, they are a part of the GU NGL in, uh, in the European Parliament. So what happened was that from 2015 to 2019, because there had been written agreements between the Socialist Party and these two parties in parliament, they were able to pass the budget and and they were always supportive of the socialist government and in other legislation as well. And this was the first time in the history of Portuguese democracy that such a left-wing alliance had taken place because until 2015, it was always thought that the communists were too left-wing and they were too Eurosceptic and too anti, uh, for instance, NATO to enter uh, such an informal coalition with the socialists. But this was possible from, from 2015 to 2019. When the 2019 elections took place, the socialists actually increased the share of their share of the vote whereas the, the, their minor coalition partners did not uh, or increased very, very slightly. So we can say that 
the main uh, beneficiaries benef beneficiaries of this uh, coalition agreement that lasted from 2015 to 2019 were the socialists rather than their left-wing uh, uh, partners. And what happened was that this in in agreement that had held from 2015 to 2019 did not repeat itself. And this was due to the fact that the Communist Party was no longer interested. They already said during the elections that they were not interested in re-enacting re uh, support, formal support, written formal support for the socialist minority government. Uh, and the left bloc, they seemed more interested, but actually uh, the socialist uh, prime minister was convinced that he didn't need any written agreements because the left parties would have no alternative but to support him if they didn't want to have a government f falling or the, the parliament being dissolved because of the budget not being passed. So the socialist uh, prime minister formed, formed another minority government, but without a formal um, written agreement with these two smaller parties. And what happened was that already in 2020, the left bloc voted against. So they were already in 2020 not convinced by the budget and they decided not to support uh, the government what but the communists uh, held on they supported the socialist the socialist budget in 2020 and so that was why uh, this uh, government continued uh, afloat so to speak and finally, now in this past October, following uh, local elections where the communist government lost heavily because they lost uh, uh, important bastions of the local power that they had to the Socialist Party, they decided also to withdraw support from the Socialist Party at the national level and decided not to vote in favor of the budget and the bloc that already had voted against the budget in 2020 kept their opposition and that is why the this budget did not pass and the president decided to dissolve parliament and hold elections because uh, this functional majority was no longer uh, working you know it's in, it's interesting you know the the dynamics of coalitions right because i guess it's something quite common with smaller parties struggling to benefit from the concessions they have to make to in those kinds of uh, arrangements absolutely but i guess so obviously you explained very well the trajectory of how we ended up here how portugal ended up here uh, since this drama then uh, towards the end of last year if we look at the election campaign that followed as you say the socialist party in recent years has been very strong they've benefited from these agreements that it's made to the left and have they been able to use this chaos to their own benefit still or have the minor parties the communist party and the left bloc been able to mobilize their voters in in opposition which i assume would have been their goal when sort of enforcing this this dissolution of parliament. So how would you say that the electorate so far and leading up to the elections have responded? Are PS or Socialist Party going into this uh, as favorites? Yes, absolutely. They are going into this as favorites. The polls showed just after the dissolution that there was a, de a decrease, a substantial decrease for the left bloc vote intentions. So they had a, 
uh, almost 10% of the vote in the in 2019 and uh, at the moment their vote intention in the poll aggregate is around 6% and the communist party had 6% in the vote in 2019 and they have decreased slightly only to 5% but this is also to do with the fact that they were already so small and their electorate is perhaps more loyal than the left bloc electorate right but it seems that if we are considering only the polls, and of course this can, may well change at election day, we all know that, but the polls suggest that these two parties, and especially the left bloc, are being held responsible for the dissolution of parliament, whereas the Socialist Party did not suffer the same kind of uh, vote intention decline. However, it is true that it, there seems to be a slight trend of decline in vote intention for the Socialist Party, and the beneficiaries of that are not the left parties, but the right, the centre-right party, PSD. So it's more about the, the electorate uh, perhaps considering an alternative government and looking to the right for a governing solution, uh, given that on the left there seems to be little understanding on ways forward for a future uh, government after, after the 30th of January. So you mentioned PSD, so the, the main opposition party. And can you just talk quickly about the, the alternative then to what's proven to be a, a slightly unworkable left-wing coalition? Is there a realistic alternative to the right? Could they get a majority? What's that looking like? Is there any is there any tradition or any possibility of some sort of cross-parliamentary um, agreement between the major parties or sort of what what are the alternatives? for the Portuguese electorate? It's actually very open in terms of coalition scenarios because the, the centre-right PSD party is now is currently led by a, a leader who says he's a social democrat and that he's rather left-wing, that he doesn't consider himself right-wing, uh, Rui Rio. And he has uh, been um, telling the, the public that if the Socialist Party wins with, a, with only a relative majority, that he would be willing to give support to, that, to, that, uh, to a formation of a socialist minority government and support the budget. So saying, you don't need to turn left again, I will support, uh, I will support you, I will, I will uh, support you in parliament. So they have said that, he has said that, but he's also interested in winning an outright majority that is quite unlikely, but it would be possible perhaps uh, to have a majority of a coalition of right-wing parties. That is a question mark uh, in terms of the result on, on the 30th of January. At the moment, the polls indicate that PSD has on average 30% of the vote intention, whereas uh, PS is around 38% of the vote intention. But these things can quickly change. So there is also a possibility that there would be a right-wing coalition led by this PSD. And there, the, the question is, which parties would be necessary to form this coalition? And as you may know, we have uh, we had the entry in 2019 of this radical right party, Chega, who elected, managed to elect one MP. Portugal was until very recently one of the last 
countries where there was no radical right represented in parliament and this barrier was broken in 2019 with this election of the Shiga MP and they are one of the uh, kind of novelties of the polls of the recent polls is showing that support for this party has increased quite, quite significantly given that they only had one percent in 2019 and now polls show their support at around six to seven percent this means that they may become the third most voted uh, party in uh, in parliament which would be a huge change right in the dynamics on the right and maybe would make them an inevitable coalition partner for the center-right PSD. And what do they say about that, the center-right PSD? Because obviously something I know lots of political scientists uh, are interested in is how these parties are dealt with and how that impacts you know, their support. So what's been the response of the center-right in Portugal uh, to Chega, especially as, uh, as you've explained, as they've taken quite a centrist turn themselves. So what does that mean for a coalition potentially with such a radical party? We had elections in uh, in the Azores, uh, regional elections in the Azores recently. And what happened was that there was a, the, the socialists were the most voted party, but there was a right wing majority of, led by the PSD, if it was made, formed a minority government with support from these right wing parties, including Chega. And the PSD did not hesitate. And they did form this minority government with parliamentary support from several small right-wing parties, including Chega. So what people are saying, and they don't deny this, is that if this formula was found in the Soros, well, it will also be uh, followed in at the national level in case um, the distribution of the votes are such that they can only form a government that has majority support in parliament if they have support from Chega. And they will not discard that. They will accept that. What, what the leader, Hui Hiu, has said is that he discards the, the idea of including Chega in government. So they will not go that far. That would be the red line. But certainly there is no red line in terms of parliamentary support. Interesting. So I have a couple of Final question. So say, for example, that in the end, the result of these elections are quite similar to the 2019 ones. Do you think would the Socialist Party look left once again? So could we end up in a situation where it's sort of deja vu and uh, a situation where, you know, we get yet another stable and potentially short parliamentary term? Or do you think there's enough pressure from the electorate and the politicians interests as well to 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 solve these gridlocks um, after the, the poll at the end of the month. What the Prime Minister said yesterday in a debate was that in case he wins the elect his party win the election, uh, he will not contribute to instability. And that means that he will seek to forge alliances. Uh, he also mentioned uh, that it would be possible to have an alliance with PAN and LIVRE. The Portuguese parliament has become quite fragmented and these two parties, they are, they are left, centre-left parties, one on, that are not the previous uh, coalition partners. And he said, well, if these two parties did well and so did the Socialist Party, that could be an alternative. So he's putting, there are many different scenarios. But one thing that seemed clear from last night's debate was that the Prime Minister, if he, if the Socialist Party wins, they will try to forge, a, they will form a coalition, a minority, a minority government, and try to seek support uh, 
uh, in Parliament and they likely will look left first uh, before considering other options. That makes sense. And then finally, something that's interesting as well is, you know, with more fragmented party systems across Europe, really, something that's becoming more and more common are these negotiations after election results come in and way less clear-cut sort of situations going into election day. And we have, you know, some countries where they take months and months and months to form coalitions, like in Germany, where that's not dramatic even. You have, you know, country where I'm from, Sweden, where it was sort of a traumatic experience in 2018, having three months uh, of coalition talks. When it comes to Portuguese politics, like how how long can we all expect to wait from Election Day until uh, a new government uh, gets voted in? Do you dare guess that? Or no, I don't dare guess it, uh, but I would say there is tremendous pressure for a government to be sworn in because um, there is a, a, the, the, the budget was not passed and that means that there is a, simply a continuity from the previous budget and no new measures are able to be implemented that were already in the in the in the previous in the new budget right that was not passed and there's tremendous pressure for that and then there is no tradition really of full-fledged coalition agreements and there is no real appetite for full-fledged coalitions what what's being what is being discussed is minority governments with support from different parties in parliament and for that which is the formula that was found in 2015 right you don't need a lot of uh, thrashing out minute details of policy uh, you need a commitment uh, this of course has consequences for the stability may have consequences for the stability of the the agreement but it seems that it's more of that type of way of working here that exists then uh, and and that is on the on the table even then fully fledged coalition agreements that would take months to uh, define thank you so much marina for coming on it's been really uh, useful to get all this context and i guess we have two uh, weeks now of intense campaigning and polling that we'll obviously be sharing as quickly as we can on on our channels so we look forward to that and thank you so much again thank you thank you very much Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, Vcontacta and YouTube. We're spreading out wherever we can. So do please follow us. There's no excuse not to anymore. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, Yanis Arshakian, and Yavi Debad. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons from Patreon. Coolio.